So, Paul, prior, prior to becoming a, a, a well-known writer and politico, you were a firefighter. Um, how, how did that come about? Well, I'm still a firefighter, actually. Um, it's, it's still my day job um, and it's my primary job and everything else, really. I have to kind of fit around that. So, so I've, been a, I've been a firefighter for, it will be 24 years at the end of this year. Um, and I was very active in the, in the fire brigades union, um, became active in the union shortly after becoming a, a professional firefighter. Um, and so that was, that's the background to, to my politics in many ways. Um, and, you know, through my activity through the union, it kind of led me down other avenues and I've ended up with, with a column and, you know, the, the occasional media appearance and, and things like that. But, but yeah, Primarily, I'm a firefighter, and uh, it's important that I never forget that. Yeah. Does your does your attachment to that as a profession um, has it taken a hit at all with your sort of with with your split from the from the union? No, not really. Um, the you know the, the the whole business with the FBU was was messy and disappointing and unnecessary and politically motivated. Um, I think that's pretty clear to most people looking from the outside in. Um, but, you know, I've always retained my employment with my fire brigade employer. Um, so that's continued, fortunately. Um, so I'm uh, I'm back on the tools, as it were. Wonderful. Um, was it something that you always wanted to do? Firefighting? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say necessarily always, but certainly from from probably my teenage years, I remember going to when when you're about 14 or 15, um, my school, as probably most schools did, sent us on a, a careers convention at the, the local town hall. And um, I'd always been sort of quite sporty, quite active, um, always playing football and cricket and whatnot. Um, and the London Fire Brigade had a stall at this convention um, and I got talking to a couple of the guys and um, it was something that really appealed to me. Um, so at quite an early opportunity, um, I, I took the opportunity to, to join. So, so you've been a firefighter since 97, you said tw it's 24 years, right? Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only, I'm only slightly older than your career, than your career as a firefighter. Um, that worries me. As a, <laughs> as a, as a, a working class lad from you know East London or sort of Essex border border region, did you did you feel um, your your options were um, limited per se? I mean, you you, you so you entered the workforce just before Blair's whole thing about sending everyone to university came to fruition. Did you did you feel that as someone who's of of the working class, you um, were limited for options? Um, it's probably quite a bit before um, Blair came to, to power, actually. I mean, I, I first entered the world of work in 1991 when I was 16 um, right, right. and um, did, a, did a couple of office kind of jobs um, before I, I joined the fire service. And no, I, I didn't particularly feel at the time that my horizons were limited um, because I didn't really know any better. But, but looking back, actually, yeah, I mean, un unquestionably, they were. I mean, I can't really remember any teacher talking to me about going to university. I mean, that was a completely alien world to, to me um, and to, I guess, most other kids at my school. I went to a kind of bog standard Catholic comprehensive school in, in Dagenham. Um, and I'm not, I'm not really aware of any, any of my sort of former schoolmates who went to university. Some of them may have done, but I'm not aware of them. Most of them 
you know, may have sort of stayed on to do their A-levels, um, but you know, most, I think, quickly went out into, into the world of work. So, so it was kind of just, you know, that's what you did where, where I grew up, it's what my parents did, it's what, what I did. Um, and it's only later in life, really, when you understand a bit more about that other side of things and the world of universities and stuff that you think, actually, you know, there was, it was not much done to encourage people like me and, and my school friends to, to even consider university, really. And um, I'm not saying necessarily I would have gone down that path, but perhaps it would have been nice to have had a, an opportunity. But, but no, it just, mm. it just didn't happen. Mm. That's, yeah, some, 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 sometimes I, I, I do feel as if I, I, um, I may have been happier or at least more secure financially if I'd not gone to university and if I'd done, you know, sort of apprenticeship. But, but you know, again, I, I was I was sort of coming out of uh, of college in, uh, in sort of 2014. So that was kind of, you know, it, that was when it was, you know, it was the done thing. Um, yeah. But we're, we're here to discuss your your tastes. Um, would, would you say you have like one sort of fixed taste in, in say music or film or is it like you know is it just whatever you like you like uh yeah no i wouldn't say i i, I like jazz uh, when it comes to music I, and it's only really in in later years that, that i've got into jazz um i mean i'm certainly no connoisseur i must say that um but and and you know when i was a kid i had no interest in it at all um one of my friends said it was um um, it was just instrument noise, um, mm. jazz. Uh, that's that's you know that's how he described it, and I can see why someone might say that, and that's probably how, how I looked upon mm. it um, as a younger person. But but where I, I worked in Islington for many many years at Islington Fire Station, and there were a great kind of number of pubs and clubs around the area. And one particular pub used to do regular jazz nights, live jazz bands, you know, quartets and stuff, and. Um, after a while of listening to it, you kind of really get into it and you appreciate the sound of it. Um, so I guess if I had to choose a particular musical genre, I'd, I'd probably go for, for that one, but without being expert about it. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, 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 it's one of the things where it's sort of like beer and coffee, where um, you, you kind of just, you, you sort of just age into it, right? You you you, you, you sort of you know. Mm. I remember being a kid and having a you know a bit bit of my dad's beer and thinking it was just horrible, like yeah. oh, horrible. But then you know, come you know, eighteen, nineteen, I loved it. Um, mm. Yeah, it's one of those things. Mm. Yeah, so it's an acquired taste, I think. Mm -hmm. So what what sort of things were you listening to in in ninety one when you were first sort of leaving school? Oh God, I mean, probably probably just the charts, really. I mean, I used to do that thing, which I think probably every teenager used to do around that time, where you you listen to the, the top forty on Radio One uh, on a Sunday afternoon, and um, you know, rather than buy the individual records, you just right. get the set and, and record the top forty chart, <laughs> which I think lasted for about three hours, <laughs> um, and then you know you just play the play the cassette. So so yeah, I mean it was just really the music at the time, I guess that I was that I was listening to. Hmm. So what would that have been? Would that have been like Britpop and? Um, I think it was probably it was probably before. I mean certainly before the sort of blur. An oasis kind of stuff, which which came in the you know the, the mid nineties, I think it was. Um, so around the around the time, it was probably having the Pet Shop Boys or the Communards, and I mean I'm not saying I was particularly into those bands, but you know that was the that was the kind of thing that was that was in the charts at the time. Duran Duran, that's probably a bit earlier, I guess. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm glad to mention Duran Duran. My um, I think you know because I think. I think 
it's, it's, you know it's common for, you, for your, your your parent especially if they're into music themselves to try and you know, get you into what excited them when they when they were your age so um mm-hmm. yeah my my uh unfortunately my dad did try and fail to get me into duran duran but he um he he managed to get, get me into some things like um like aldro was a big thing he got me into yeah well i, I kind of in in more recent years i mean i really like frank sinatra um, mm. and i yeah. you know i wouldn't have i wouldn't have given you house room for him you know 20 years ago i guess and and people like Billie Holiday um, mm. listen to, to Billie Holiday all day long. And mm. She's the most wonderful singer. Um, so, so you do, I think, you know, as you get older, you do perhaps look back a bit further and appreciate some of the music from before your own time in a way that you don't when you're young, particularly. Mm. There's, a very, there's a very sad story with Billie Holiday. And it, 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 it kind of, it, it adds a sort of a, a context to the music because you're right, it is, a, she's a beautiful voice, but when you, when you read about her life and, mm. you know, um, sort of how, how I, I suppose bleak it was at times, it, 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 it sort of, that, that beauty kind of takes on like a sort of a, a dimension of pain too, which kind of elevates it a little bit to me. There's a, there's a really good film that's came out, I think fairly recently, which I watched the other day, The United States versus Billie Holiday. Um, and Billie Holiday, is, so it's all about her runnings with uh, with the authorities in the US and you know her drug abuse and stuff. Um, but she didn't. It was an okay film. But um, Andra Day, who who plays Billie Holiday, who's a fantastic singer in her own right, um, and played played the part particularly well. So I'd certainly I certainly recommend that as a film. What is the first record on on your list? Um, the first album um, is Pure by The Lightning Seeds, um, which is, uh, I think that came out around 1995, 1996. Um, and in that 25 years, I would, I would say, um, played it incessantly, really. Um, I got into it first because I went to, went on holiday to Crete with some mates to Malian, um, and a mate had the album and um, just CD as it was in those days. and um, and just played it pretty much non-stop for the week so so i kind of i kind of picked up on it as well and um it's just really a collection of kind of cheery summer tunes i would say and and yeah, that, that that would have been 96 that i first listened to it and just after that um a couple of months later was the euro 96 football championships right. where the lightning right. scenes did the, the theme song mm, yeah, yeah with, with um with uh with Dylan Skinner. yeah so um so yeah, that yeah. kind of tied in with it in with mm. it quite well so that's that's probably an album i've played more than any other over the years i think mm-hmm. it's um so it, it's fronted by ian ian browdy right uh, ian Brody. Yeah. yeah um so because he's interesting so he's I'm not, I'm not sure if you know this but he's um he was in a band called uh big in japan mm. who were who were big in sort of the liverpool punk scene in in the sort of 70s and what's interesting about them is that, is that the, the band didn't really go anywhere but all of the members went on to do like much bigger things i think i think one of the guys from uh frank goes to hollywood was it was in was in um big in japan one of the guys from oh god i can't remember, can't remember what, what 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 they were called um they made like they made like like a like a lot of parody songs and they got into like top of the pops and that sort of thing. But it, it's it's an interesting band because it was like a an, an incubator for sort of yeah yeah. I don't know much about being in Japan, but I think he was I think he was because he he also produced a lot of albums as as well for other bands and was involved with other bands. Echo and the Bunny Men, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, and you don't really hear about. It. I think they're still going, but you don't really hear about them anymore. But that was uh, I think that was quite a popular popular mm. album at the time. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? How how Liverpool has, has its its musical heritage extends 
way beyond the Beatles, but that that's sort of what it all, what you think of when you think of, you know, the music of Liverpool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, think, I imagine most people associate the, the Beatles, obviously, with, with Liverpool. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But I guess uh, Jerry Marsden and people like that, and yeah. you know, the 1960s scene, um, you know, it was particularly, particularly big, wasn't it, Liverpool? What's your uh, second record? So the second one is um, is the album Rain Town by um, by Deacon Blue, um, who I would probably say my favourite band, Scottish band, um, lead singer Ricky Ross is from Dundee, but, but they've got very much this kind of Glasgow feel. And it was their it was the album Rain Town in about '87, I think it was, that kind of launched them really onto onto the scene and. Um, I particularly like it if you look at the if you look at the album cover from memory it's it's kind of a, a black and white mm-hmm. the, the landscape of industrial glasgow and it's got that feel about all the tracks as well it's very sort of industrial very kind of pretty. yeah the the album cover if I, if I, if I, yeah the cover if I, if I recall it's quite smoky and there's like a crane mm. and yeah it's yeah it's i yeah it's it's um i haven't i haven't listened to it properly in a very long time i i, I do i do like the record it's um and you're right and, and and lyrically it's quite um it's quite cool it's it's sort of it's conceptual in a way in that the songs are all about kind of you know urban life and and um and it's, it's it's quite political. I mean, the, the mm. songs on. I mean, Dignity is probably the flagship song for me. It's probably their their flagship song of all time, I would think, which is about a guy um, who um, is just a, an ordinary guy who works for the council, but he's been saving up for years to buy a boat which he wants to use to sail mm. around the Western Isles. Mm. Um, but it's also uh, songs like He Looks Like Spencer Tracy Now, which is quite a political song about the dropping dropping of the atom bomb on Japan and, and stuff like that. So. So yeah, it's, it kind of chimes with, with my politics in, in some mm, way. Mm. I've seen them live a few times, they're a pretty decent outfit, I think. Hmm. Uh, that's good, that. That's good when you, when you see a band and it it, 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 um, it does the record justice. Well, I've, I've gone to see a lot of bands where they've just been crap live and it's, it's really sort of um, spoiled my ability to, to, to enjoy them. Um, mm. Deacon Bill, I have to say, have a really good line. I've seen them about half a dozen times live and they've been really good on each occasion. Great. The um so the record opens with with quite a, an odd track. Is it born in a born in the storm or born in a storm or something like that? It's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, that, that's true. It's, it's, that's that's a very short number. Yeah, it's very, it's very like, atmospheric and gloomy, yeah. and it, it sort of it feels like you're listening to like a foggy sort of grey city, right? Yeah, um, that's about right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and. I, I very much like records that are able to capture a time and place quite well. And it's, um, mm. I, I'm not, I don't personally know a whole lot about, you know, the sort of um, Glasgow during the Thatcher years, but I, I can imagine it's not too dissimilar from someone like Sheffield or, um, or Sunderland. Or... Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, you know, once upon a time, heavily industrialised mm. um, Glasgow, see the shipyards, for example, you know, the, the, the number of people who worked on the shipyards and the prominence of the shipyards, the, the River Clyde, quite political, you know, Red mm. Clyde side and, and that kind of thing. Um, big Labour Party presence in the, in the place, but, you know, suffered in the 80s, the kind of deindustrialization um and Thatcherite policies largely that many other cities faced as well. So, so you know, it certainly had its certainly had its mm. tough opinions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it and it, it you know it, it I suppose it naturally creates good music. Um, you know, there's more inspiration to be found in kind of misery than joy. I feel. Yeah, it's probably true in some respects. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, what's your third record? So the third one is a, is a soundtrack, actually. It's a, it's a soundtrack to the, the film The Mission, um, which is, is a great film. Um, it came out in the 80s with um, Jeremy Irons and uh, Robert De Niro, and um, it's about Christian missionaries essentially going to, to uh, convert the indigenous peoples of, of South America. But the, um, the soundtrack was by the composer Ennio Morricone. Um, right, who did, who did uh, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. That's right. Yeah. Once upon a time in America and, yeah. and all sorts of stuff over the years. And, and sadly, sadly died a couple of years ago. But I had the, I had the good fortune to, to go to one of his concerts at the Royal Albert Hall um 15 20 years ago but but I, I i've got a particular reason because the there's a there's a piece of music from um it's a lovely lovely album very much sort of written in the native style as well of, of south america and some of the sort of indigenous people's instruments and stuff but um when we got married my wife um walked up the aisle to uh, one of the tunes on it gabriel's oboe um which is fantastic piece of music and you know you'd, you'd hear it if you switched on classic fm you'd hear it every now and then um so so it's a it's a wonderful kind of album but at the same time um it's got some personal meaning as well Morricone mm. mm. is yeah i mean um I, I believe he died during the first lockdown um oh okay i think mm. it was, yeah it was the it was either last year or the year before but um yeah he's a phenomenal composer um mm. and it's it's a point you made about um him using sort of you know native sounds um because i mean he, he's probably best known for doing the soundtrack for uh the spaghetti westerns and the good the bad and the ugly it's 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 um well the, there's nothing there's nothing like it i mean pe pe people have tried to like kind of you know replicate that but the yeah the sound and the feel of it i think it it, it elevates the film and, and i, I I'm aware we're talking about a different film here, but um... yeah, I haven't seen it actually. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, 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 I really ought to have done. I know, but I yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Actually, so um, later on in the series, I'm going to be the guest on the show, um, and that's my pick um, for best film. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah it's um, holistically, it's just, it's just a, such a fantastic film in terms of like you know the how it's shot, how it's acted, how it's written, how the how it sounds. It's yeah, so. Mm -hmm music um is the is the is the film as sort of highly regarded to you as as the soundtrack as well yeah the film's excellent uh, i haven't seen it for many years but it's, it's excellent i think it won uh, it won the palm door award i think and um it was, it was nominated for, for various awards and it, it was very sort of highly acclaimed um so i would uh, yeah thoroughly recommend it what is the first book on your list um, so the first book is The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists, um, yeah, which, okay. is, which is a, a classic in many ways. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm somebody who's on the, who's on the left of someone and someone who's come up through the trade union movement. Um, and this is, for many people, this is the Bible of, of socialism. This is, mm. um, you know, an introduction in many respects to, to a critique of the, of the capitalist system. Um, mm. And it's about, um, it's about um, a, a chap, a painter and decorator called Frank Owen, um, who strives to kind of win his his guy. I think it was published in the in the so it's nineteen tens, right? So I was I was going to say yeah, probably in the second decade of the of the last century, and um, and yeah, he he kind of strives to to win his um, colleagues to the cause of socialism and you know the importance of organising in the workplace, and he doesn't actually have very much success. But 
you know, he, he kind of um, it, it has its faults, to be honest. Um, you know, some of the some of the attitude towards his fellow workers that's expressed, he's quite, you know, sneering and, and mocking. Um, but, you know, as a, as a critique of the capitalist system at the time um, and the importance of, you know, workers binding together and, and using their using their collective strength to organize and to, to win better conditions for themselves conditions at work in, in those days were obviously pretty awful for many people mm. um it's it's a hugely important tract um so yeah that's the first choice mm. what's interesting about that uh, as a story is that the the author himself is is of that background right i think, I think the author actually was a house painter Robert Tresson, that's right yeah whereas yeah. if you compare it to some of the sort of uh, late Victorian critiques of, you know, capitalism being, you know, say Disraeli in, in the in the novel Sybil or or Dickens in basically any of his works, um, it it feels more kind of authentic. It's more it's someone who's who's sort of lived it, right? Yeah, it was it was almost like it was written through his through his own eyes and own experiences, really. And the sad thing is, I think in Princess Anne, he wasn't around to see it published. He tried to get it published, um, and he he didn't manage to see it published. And um, you know, it became it became uh, a very prominent book only after it died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I haven't read it in in a, in a long time, but I remember I remember loving the dialogue in that novel. Mm. it's sort of like um again i don't know it's like it 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 sort of throws to the curb the um the sort of the more pretentious um prose of of the sort of more established authors and it just it just feels more grounded it's quite authentic yeah i mean yeah. because because that was his background that was that was his environment um those were the people he mixed with um you know i think that in terms of the the, the dialogue and the interactions and the language and whatever that that certainly comes through mm. yeah it's it's I, so it was probably written around the time that the Labour Party was first sort of coming up, right? Yeah, because the so you had the Labour Representation Committee, which was formed in 1900, which was the forerunner to the Labour Party, which which came about formally in 1906. Um, you know, it took a couple of decades for for the Labour Party to form its first government, but but certainly around about that time, after there was the the split with the the Liberals. Um, you know the the ideas of the, the the Labour Party and of democratic socialism were, were I think being discussed more widely among workers than than before. So yes, I mean it goes hand in hand. I think with that period, the Labour movement seems to have lost that kind of that um, sort of uh, you know um, working working men in, in work sort of discussing those ideas. It, it now seems to be sort of treated as a as a sermon of sort of you know slightly more middle class people um so trying to trying to, try to direct a revolution rather than um a, a sort of an authentic groundswell yeah and i think i think that's partly i mean certainly true and i think that's partly to do with you know the fact that you know, the industrialization has meant that there aren't as many trade unionists around now than they're compared to, to days gone by um and you know the, the trade union movement, for example, in terms of membership, has, has halved over the last forty years. Um, so you don't have that kind of political trade union movement and workers discussing things in the workplace and taking decisions and organising in the way that you in the way that you did. Um, and that is a, I think that's a huge problem because when you look at the you look at the emergence of the gig economy um, and you know zero hours contracts and. Mm-hmm. 
precarious employment. Um, you know, I think that trade unions are needed as much as they ever were, but for all sorts of mm. reasons, um, you know, they're not they're not in, they're not in the lives of many people, and I think that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it's um. There's a, there's, a, there's a big sort of demoralizing effect too, where you know, whereas prior to say um, Thatcher and the and the and the, and the deindustrialization of the late last century, um, the, the, the the sort of jobs that that the working class had um, were you know honourable inherent um, you know interge- intergenerational jobs that that supplied mm-hmm. you know status without having to go through sort of the 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 ringer of, of of university nowadays it seems like the 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 quote-unquote working class is, is um sort of more more common in in, in you know in in the services industry than in in, in in industry i mean and we sneer you know we sneer at vocation we sneer at blue-collar jobs we, we sneer at people you know getting a, a trade which once upon a time would have been a source of pride to, to someone but now everybody is kind of expected to be crammed through university and you know all the all the people involved involved in manual labor or skilled labor um whether they're electricians or plumbers or whatever we just kind of import from abroad because it's a cheap way of doing it and then suddenly we find that you know we've got enormous numbers of kids going through universities who are, who are coming out and their degrees sadly are, are not worth much not through any lack of effort on their part but because you know Mm. Um, there's just so many people in the in the same boat and you hear stories of uh, people who have been to university and are, and are working you know in in shops and stuff and I'm not decrying that I, you know I believe there's dignity in all labor but you shouldn't kind of mislead people um, about what going to university will will deliver so I, I think you know our, our kind of obsession with putting people through university and looking down on on the importance of vocation as uh, as cost us quite mm. a bit. Mm-hmm. What's your, what's your second book? The second one is um, what well, is a classic, really, but not many people in this country, I don't think, have, have read it. It's called Independent People, and it was written by an Icelandic author back in the 30s called Haldor Laxness. Um, and it's set. It's, it's a story uh, about a sheep farmer. I mean, when I when I describe it to you, it's probably not going to sell it at all. It's um, it's about a sheep farmer called uh, Biata of the Summer Houses, um, and about his fight in, in raising a family and the challenges that are presented by economic exploitation and the kind of unforgiving Icelandic landscape, as you can imagine. Um, but it's a it's a story about family, about self sacrifice. Um, about resilience um and you know when you when you kind of read that as a synopsis you, you may well think oh, it's not for me but actually it's an epic it's it's, mm. it's really a fantastic book and, and i'd recommend it to everybody it's um one of the fascinating things i find about it actually is is it was it was translated by a guy called j.a thompson uh who i've never heard of in any other context at all um i read somewhere that he, he was a, he was a lecturer in iceland um, so he knew the language, but when he was in this country, he was working at a petrol station in the northeast somewhere, and yet he produced this absolute masterpiece translation of this epic story, and then kind of disappeared off the off the scene. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of been fascinated about finding out more more of him, but but without success. But but I, I genuinely recommend it. It's a brilliant book. Well, I'm 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 not aware of this book. Sadly, um, it sounds like cause, so you said you know an epic um, novel about the. Icelandic uh, sort of agrarian life. It's, it it mm. sounds like um, 
um, to, to, to make a, a, a possibly awful comparison, it, it sounds like almost um, whenever I've read Dostoevsky uh, or even Tolstoy, where the sort of Russia is almost a character of its own, right? The, 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 the wilderness and, and the, the setting is almost its own character. Yeah, and I mean, Iceland, Iceland's like that. I mean, but, but it's got an incredible history. I mean, it's, it's actually um, reportedly the first the first country to to have a, a, a proper sort of function in Parliament, um, and it's got an incredible sort of literary literary history as well. Um, the Icelandic sagas and and mm. things like that. So it's not it's not the it's not the thing you would necessarily associate with that country. You just sort of think of this bleak landscape, which is snow and ice, with you know a few towns dotted around the edge. Um, but actually, you know, that, that history is really worth exploring and, and the literary history of it as well, definitely. Mm. Going again, because uh, sadly I'm not aware of it all, but, but going off the title alone, I, I can assume that uh, independence is, is, is quite a strong theme in the, in, in, in the three. Um, just out of curiosity, how, how old were you when you, when you read it? Um, I first read it quite a few years ago now. I mean, I can't, I can't remember exactly when, but it was probably a, probably a decade ago um, okay. I read it. But I've, I've read it since. I read it again during lockdown, actually, because it was probably appropriate. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it is an epic. It's a, it's, a, it's a long book. But some of, some of the language is, is beautiful, pure poetry. Um, so it's really, worth, it's really worth seeking out. Yeah, I, I, I'll definitely add it to my list. Um... It's it's a it's a it sounds like a, a really sort of quite powerful theme, right? Um, independence and sort of self sufficiency and and kind of you know self determination on 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 the land. So yeah, I, I I'll look forward to. And, and of course, you know these were these were days and and places that existed before you know any kind of functioning welfare modern welfare state and you know people where people couldn't um survive through their own efforts they often had to to rely on charity but you know often often and this is very much the theme of this story people were too proud in many respects to to take charity and there was a guy trying to raise a family in the most unforgiving circumstances but was absolutely determined to to try to succeed and i won't tell you the ending um but um but yeah it's it comes recommended by me what is the um how, how did you feel about the protagonist while you were reading it um yes sympathetic actually yeah is it is it someone who is sympathetic but also it's sort of it's almost elevated and you can kind of look up to um that sort of character i mean it was it was kind of yeah i think so it was it was a guy who had an enormous sense of pride who was raising or trying to raise a family and and was trying to um you know to to make his his farm his land um successful and pay for him um in the most difficult economic um and environmental circumstances you know fighting against the, the elements um and it was it's kind of it's set in the years leading up to the first world war so you can kind of imagine how difficult it was during that period right um, sure. and then some of it after the first world war as well wonderful yeah i'll um I'll, I'll definitely look into it um i do i do quite like um the the storytelling that comes out of um northern europe as a whole but but uh nordic countries have, have a very interesting um narrative uh tradition um but we'll 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 move along again um to your third and final book and um, well, the third one is is Captain Corelli's Mandolin, which is obviously a, a good old fashioned love story um, yeah. set against the backdrop of the, the Second World War. Um, the Italian army has obviously 
launched an invasion of, of Greece. They've occupied Kefalonia, one of the, the Greek islands, and um, the, the Italian captain Corelli falls in love with the uh, daughter of a, of a local doctor. She herself has got a fiance away fighting, um, fighting with the Greek army against the Italians. Um, so there's all kind of themes of, of love and war and divided loyalties and whatever but louis de bernier um i think just just writes it so so beautifully it's so beautifully written um and again you know for for the few people i guess who haven't read it um i won't spoil the end but there's a, there's a massacre involved somewhere and it was made into a film and it was actually massacred itself the, the book was massacred by the film because the film really wasn't really wasn't good at all it had nicholas cage in the in that the happens movie. And that was yeah. John Hurt, who played the Doctor, was brilliant. But um, but I think other people were just really miscast. But the the, the book itself um, is is uh, yeah, I think exceptional. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and and there's from from what I can recall, there's there's sort of there's good love and there's bad love in the story. There's um one of the relationships is sort of just kind of lust that um it 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 burns out after the war, right? It's it's fascinating because you know I don't want to give away the the ending, but but yeah, I mean there's a there's a kind of losing of of contact, um, but then you know many years down the line you can kind of imagine what happens again, uh, without kind of revealing the mm. the ending too much. Um, but it's I was I went to Catalonia where it's set um, a couple of years ago, uh, and and sadly it was hit by an earthquake actually, and I think 1953. So so much of that Catalonia, and it was a really serious earthquake. The only bit of the island I think that survived it <clears throat> was the northern part, a kind of town called uh, Fiscardo. Um, but it's um, it's a, it's the most beautiful island as well. So it's it's the great backdrop to to a brilliant story. There's um there's a quote from that book. Um, it's it's the only actual bit of actual line that I, I actually clearly remember um from the page in my memory it's um it's the the, the character of the, the the doctor um mm. uh, love is what is left when the passion goes yeah and there's there's actually and I'm, there's no way i can uh, remember it all off the top of my head um because it was it was quite a, a few years ago that i um i read it but it, it, there's this i think quite early on in the book um where he talks, you know, love is not a passing fad. It's, you know, you're two trees and you, you, you need to, you know, you need to make sure your roots entwine. And it's almost like a, an epic poem, actually. So, yeah, it's worth seeking out just for that alone. It was just mm -hmm. quite beautiful. It's, it's 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 another thing too, isn't it? So the 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 novel places both um, fascism and communism in, in its in its sights, right? It's it's sort of it's sort of lambasted to. <clears throat> Yeah, very, very critical of the of the communists who were around at the time. And, you know, whenever I say to people on the left um, that I really enjoyed it as a book, there'll always be some of them who, who will say, you know, it's an anti-communist, but, but, but yeah, equally, equally a fascism as well. Um, so I think, I think it's very difficult for an author to, to write a book about such a historical event as that and, and not necessarily bring their own kind of political prejudices to, to it in a way. Mm. Um, but in many respects, I think that's that's secondary to, to the greater part of the book, which is just a, you know, basically an old fashioned love story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also there's, um, there's a, there's a sort of platonic love in there, in there too. And I don't mean platonic as in like love between friends. I mean, it is, um, as as a, a love for something sort of inanimate, right? Like like um like music is 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 um 
quite heavily used and it, it, there's sort of a interesting um thing about how um sort of beauty can arise from tragedy and chaos yeah and then the, the the music obviously is centered around the mandolin which i think louis de bernier uh, the author actually plays himself right. um, so he was able to to bring that expertise oh. to it and obviously the the captain um in the story, you know, he's, he's a he's a great player of the instrument too. So so that features quite heavily. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a wonderfully unique instrument. And um, yeah, they, I I I love, I love the way it's played. It it, it sort of um, well, I I don't know anything about about playing music, but uh, yeah, I just I just know I know that I like the way mandolin. Well, I had um, when I when I used to work at, at um at fire station at Islington Fire Station, one of my um, firefighter colleagues played the mandolin and you could often, when you were walking around the station on duty, you would often hear the mandolin striking up in various places in the locker room or in the office or something. And, uh, you know, you, you do you do get to appreciate um, the sound of it. He was he was quite average, but um, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a great instrument. Mm. Yeah. OK, so let's... Um... Uh, move on to film. Um, so, um, so we've done three three books, three records. So, but we're we're only giving you one film this time around. So, um, what's your film? So the film this was a tough one actually. I mean, I've got I've got quite a few favourite films. Um, I mean, I, I love American Werewolf in London, which right. was a horror movie from the early eighties. I love. Um, it's an old film from the uh, from the forties, I think it was. Bicycle Thieves, which is um, yeah, which is Italian film, right? Italian sort of social realist film. It's a very sad story. Um, but I, I've gone for a fairly recent film, actually, Midnight in Paris, which was uh, written and directed by Woody Allen. Yeah, it's a yeah, fantastic film. Yeah, oh, yeah. In, the, in the main role, and and I've, I've kind of long been a bit of a francophile and um so it was right up my street really mm, and, and mm. wilson plays uh, a writer in modern day paris he's able to sort of find a way of traveling back in time so the, to the paris of the 20s and he meets you know all the, the prominent people who were around there at the time scott yeah. cole porter ernest hemingway people like that yeah. um, and it's just it's magnificently shot and he goes to, to parties with them back in the day and you know they play the music of the time so mm. you know it, it kind of um it strengthened my Franco-feeling. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's um, well, it, it's such a it's such a fascinating time. Um, the the lost generation, all these you know American expats in Paris, and um, I think I, I don't know the name of the actor, but the guy who played Hemingway to me completely stole the show. Yeah, he was really good. I, I don't know his name either, but he did play the he did play the role very well. Yeah, he 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 gets that he gets the 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 cold and blunt and very masculine prose of Hemingway kind of perfectly mm -hmm. in the in the role. And um, another thing that's quite interesting about, about the film is is um, towards the end when he realizes that the, that the people in the twenties look back at like the eighteen nineties. Yeah, and he goes back there too, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. So so I mean, also. I th I'm pretty sure he, he, the novel he's writing is about nostalgia, right? Yeah, I think so. It's um, it's it is to a certain degree. It's slightly kind of, of whimsical, um, but the it's it's just I think it's beautifully shot. The the music is fantastic. It's very very well acted, um, and you know for that alone, and the, and the shot particularly of you know, it's called Midnight in Paris, Paris in the rain um, as well towards the end. Um, it's just, you know, quite spectacular. Um, Michael Sheen pops up in it too, of course, and he's always, always you know. Mm. Yes, yes, he, 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 played, 
he plays the uh, the the pretentious. Um, That's right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the stuff that he that he appears in tends to be quite good as mm. well. So, so it's it's a good all round film. Mm. I don't think it's got any weaknesses at all. There's a part in that film that I really like where he he meets the 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 surrealists and he's t- he's telling them about that he, that he's from the future. He's been sent back to Tony's Paris and and they aren't even remotely surprised. That's right. It's completely normal to them, isn't it? Yeah. Salvador Dali and and yeah. stuff you know, pop up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's um. There's a really, it's a really great bit where um. Uh, him and Hemingway are in this like car, and Hemingway's telling about this you know thing he saw in the war, and then he does this whole spiel about um how like love and 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 and, and passion and sex can sort of cure you of your fear of death temporarily, and it's um mm, mm. yeah, it's um. I'm not sure how much of that was lifted from Hemingway. I haven't honestly read that much Hemingway but um mm-hmm. yeah I, I I can imagine it was it was sort of somewhat faithful but also Woody Allen's a very good uh, sentimental filmmaker I mean typically New York is sort of the the object of his of his affections but um mm. he, he, he he I think he's very good at capturing a city in a very in a, in a sort of romantic light right yeah he did this brilliantly in my son yeah mm-hmm. so the, the the next um item on the list is I I, I think probably one of the hardest to sort of uh to pin down because it, it it really just goes down to your personality really but it's the inanimate object um yeah um i mean i i, I don't know if this is technically inanimate actually um but i'll, I'll go over it anyway it's it's just it's it's a personal thing a, a personal object that's been in a family for for many years and it belongs to my grandparents and it's it's an old kind of floor standing radiogram from the from the early 1950s wow. it's a, a murphy 146 you can google it and see a, a murphy 146 radio um and it's um obviously it's the main source of, of entertainment and information for for people back then i think in the early 50s when it was uh, when it was produced um and it's incredibly heavy but when when my when my uh grandmother died and we were doing the kind of usual house clearance nobody wanted to throw this away because it had been in the family for so long um and you know my dad and his siblings had sat around listening to it when when they were young etc um and so i ended up with it and it's it's kind of been it's quite an attractive thing and it's been sitting in my living room um for some years now and it still works so you can kind of i mean it takes a while for the valves to kick in but um, (laughs) it's still you can still get a decent sound out of it um so that's it's and i think things like that are important you know to to pass things like that down down the family because it is you know uh, a reminder of relatives who are no longer around really and because i think radios in those days were such a, as i said a central part of people's lives um you know it's it's got a particular value i think yeah I, i'm looking at it now it's a really awkwardly shaped thing yeah um, it's not it, the most it, beautiful thing but it's um it looks it, it looks like it'd be very difficult to like move from yeah it is it's heavy one spot to another is there any way you can like grip it i not really no you just have to <laughs> so i have to like hug it and then shuffle it around yeah <laughs> so 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 you could you could listen to like radio one on that thing now yeah i mean it'd be a bit odd listening to radio one on it simply because of what it is but you know you, you probably more likely listen to a bit of jazz on it or um or something like that, I guess. But um, but yeah, I mean, it still it still kicks out a, a sound even now. I think things were built to last more in those days, right now. Is it, is it something that that you then look to, to sort of hand down yourself? 
hadn't really thought about that to be honest. I mean, it's, not, it's really not worth any, any particularly in, in monetary value. Um, but it'd be nice to, you know, I guess it'd be nice to, to, to have it in the family for as long as possible, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah but but I suppose the, the the idea of not handing things down and just sort of giving them away is is a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, for you know, for, for the the lion's share of you know. Um, history of like civilization is it's been customary to you know keep things in the family like even something little mm-hmm. like, like a little locket or watch something like that but um mm. yeah i mean i i, I wouldn't mind if, if my dad my dad gave me one of those yeah yeah you know, it's um yeah it kind of evokes memories of, of yesteryear really mm. and um so i, I kind of you know, I've got a couple of kids and I turn it on every now and then. I imagine the thought of them just having an evening's entertainment sitting around listening to it. They kind of think, what? You know, we want to be on our Xbox or, or watching Netflix or whatever. But um, right. yeah, it's, it's a connection with the past and you know, it's mm. not a bad thing for that alone, I think. Yeah, you you need that. You need that. Um, so let, let's... Um, so let's move on to, to the, the last two items, which, which I personally think are the most interesting for um picking a person's brain uh, which is we'll start with your uh, historical figure well there's this kind of a crossover really between the between the two between the historical figure and the and the contemporary figure um so the historical figure um was pope leo um leo the 13th i think it was who mm. Uh, wrote an encyclical um, in 1891 called Rerum Novarum, um, which was at the time a kind of modern expression of, of Catholic social teaching. Um, and I mean, I went to, I went to, a, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I went to a Catholic school, so I'm kind of well versed in the whole, the whole kind of culture of the thing. Um, and this this particular encyclical dealt with the, the the plight of the working classes. It was it was quite critical of unfettered capitalism. It talks about the importance of justice in the workplace. It was quite a groundbreaking document at the time. It gave an explicit endorsement of, of collective bargaining, the right to, to form trade unions, etc. Um, how it's important we don't look upon human beings as commodities that economies should work in the interest of man and, and not the other way around um so that that's you know a, a key document which I, I think has been quite sort of um influential in my political thinking certainly over more recent years and i was introduced to it by i guess my choice for the contemporary figure which is morris glasman um who's the the founder of uh, of blue labor and um and a good friend um i'm pleased to say um and he has been articulating that kind of politics within the labor movement for um for many years and uh, i think it's been proved right time and again so so those are the two figures with very much a, a sort of crossover mm. between them mm. so let's um Let's go back to uh, Pope Leo, and and, and and we can get into um, Morris Glassman um, in a moment because he, he he's someone I'm I'm very interested to talk about. Um, I I I I can't say I know a whole lot about Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Um, I, I I do know he was so he he was he was Pope um, so from the late nineteenth century to the very early twentieth. Yeah, and I, I can't say I know an awful lot about him um, as a, as an individual or, or even as a pope particularly, but certainly you know the, the, this particular encyclical, um, which has stood the test of time, um, and actually you know influenced things like the the, the big London dock strike, um, and 
you know that that whole um, it was Cardinal Manning who was who was a, a prominent Archbishop of the Catholic Church at the, at the time of the, the dock strike. Um, or I should say, actually, I think that's the other way around. I said influenced the, the, the dock strike. I think was influenced by um, um, Cardinal Manning and his involvement in the in the London dock strike. Um, and you know, a time you know the, the, the late 19th century where workers really were treated as as cattle and as fodder mm. and worked in um, the most crushing and challenging of, of conditions often um to have someone like the pope come out and say actually you know we need to campaign for justice in the workplace we need mm. to, to endorse trade unions and what they mm. campaign for um you know it talks about strike action being used as a as a last resort but designing economies in the interest of man as i said and not mm. the other way around in some respect quite revolutionary mm. at the time and that's um, a, that's a man who can who can who can galvanize you know, millions of people um so with that does come a you know a, a duty of care you know you could um you could almost you know say say anything really and 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 uh, some catholics would or some people would would um would would follow that as a an interpretation of the, of the word of God. So it's, well, it's, it's papal infallibility, isn't it? So yeah, when, yeah. You know, when they when they issue these pronouncements uh, pronouncements mm. and these encyclicals, um, then you know the, the Catholic Church across the world um, mm. is is required to take it on board and mm. apply it. Um, so you know to have someone at a time where you know in in, in Britain, for example, you know those sort of Victorian conditions that were articulated by the likes of Charles Dickens and, and so on um, to have this great figure um, make that kind of pronouncement um, really made a difference and as I say I stood the test of time it's a document really worth reading today because um, as we as we touched on earlier you know the the absence of trade unions nowadays um, from the workplace and things like you know sweatshop warehouses and zero hours contracts the gig economy precarious employment um, I think that you know that document still points the way in many respects, and um, I, I, I would imagine that there's probably a lot of people on the left who, who haven't read it and may not even know it, and people on the right as well. Um, but I would I would recommend it to them. Hmm, wonderful, and let's go let's go on to um, Morris Glassman. I mean, uh, it's sort of. <laughs> It, it it makes complete sense that that you you'd, you'd pick him um given as you mentioned the 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 blue labor connection um when did you first become aware of mr glassman or or, or should i say lord glassman um what you prefer some some years ago now but we struck up a friendship particularly just after the the, the brexit campaign um and i was i was arguing very similar things to, to what he and some of his Blue Labour colleagues have been arguing, but without ever really kind of aligning ourselves or, or getting involved with each other. Um, but I'm obviously involved with the, the Blue Labour movement now. And um, I think the whole kind of message of, of Blue Labour about the importance of understanding the working class, the importance of social solidarity, of relationships, of cultural attachment, of reciprocity, dignity of labor, all of this kind of stuff, which, which has its roots, you know, very much in that kind of Catholic social thought um, against, on the one hand, against the dehumanizing market, but not in favor of a kind of impersonal, overbearing, overmighty state on the, on the other hand. Hmm. Um, I think that's got an awful lot to teach. A labor movement back today um, is in thrall to the kind of ideology of identity politics and wokery and parts of the liberal left that over the years were in thrall to the new global market um, and how that 
the impact of that which they seem not to see in terms of you know the impact on social solidarity um, and the industrialization in the communities and rupturing some of the bonds that that bound people together um, so much I think of what Blue Labour and Morris have articulated have, have been proved right and, and points the way for, for the Labour Party in the future whether or not the party takes it I think it's a different question entirely. Mm -hmm. and it, it it shows a very high level of thinking because you know we um, unfortunately we, we do live in a time where there's almost like a, you know, a, 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 a large wall that goes right through the middle of of, you know, of of society and culture and an issue and and and, and thus individuals will just tend to fall on one side and, and you know and if you're on, if you're on the right side you are a conservative and a capitalist and if you're on the left side you're a liberal and a socialist right that sort of that's that that's the 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 archaic understanding of what it means to be political um anyone who can sort of you know um take the good from either side and disregard the bad from either side is yeah it, it, it is a good thinker to me yeah, and I, I'm certainly not arguing against ideology. I mean, ideology is important. I think you, you have to be serious about influencing things in the way you want to see them, them, them change. Um, then you have to have a, an ideological footing, I think, because you know, you've, got to, you've got to have a, a platform. You've got to have a base from where to start. You, you've got to know where you're going. Um, but you've also got to understand that most people, the vast majority of the public, of the electorate, don't see things in that kind of binary left-right way mm. um and you know for example at the moment as i've argued many times there's this huge space in politics i think for um and you know to a certain degree the toys are exploiting that space now i think that's pretty clear where people want people tax on the left on economics they want to see a more egalitarian economy they want to see a higher minimum wage investment in public services closing the gap between rich and poor mm. all of that sort of stuff um but on on culture they're towards the right they believe in social solidarity um they believe in cultural attachment um, they want to discuss things like immigration without being called racist and nativist and, and bigoted. And once upon a time, people, you know, who, who, who were part of that part of the political spectrum were welcomed by the Labour Party, were very happy to vote for Labour. But the, the Labour Party has done so much to alienate those people over the last sort of decade or two um, that they've now flocked to the Tories. And um, that is a seismic shift in British politics, which... Uh, I don't know Labour's going to be able to turn that round, frankly, and mm. that's really disappointing from my point of view. Mm -hmm. Do you think now, in the wake of both Corbynism and um, I, I wouldn't say Starmerism because the, I don't think there's there's enough of a, a, a base of ideology there, but of you know the sort of the ostensibly um, more um, you know, presentable version of the, of of, of Labour. Um, now that both of those have been rejected in by by the electorate, does that open the door for Blue Labour to come in, or do you think the ship has sailed on 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 Labour? I think the door was opened with the Brexit result. I think it was opened further with the 2019 general election annihilation. I think it's been opened further again. Um, with the recent results, but whether or not the movement wants to walk through the door is an entirely different question. I, I, there are lots of people in the Labour movement who are, are, are happy with comfortable opposition, frankly, uh, who, as long as they, particularly the radical left, I would say, as long as they maintain their own purist ideology, 
um, yeah, they want to win elections, but if they lose, you know, well, you know, at least we didn't compromise on anything. At least we, we stayed true to our very fixed ideology. Mm. Well, that's fine if you want to be a pressure group. It's not fine if you want to try and build the coalition of the left that's necessary to win power. Mm. And there are too few people, I think, from that element of the left that are, that are motivated by the importance of winning power. So, you know, I've argued recently, I don't think either the liberal left or the radical left of the Labour Party, which pretty much dominate the party between the two of them, um, have understood what it takes to, to reconnect with the working class. I think they've both, for various reasons, been responsible for alienating the working class from the party, and for the most part, have not learned the, the lessons of it. And, you know, we saw that again with the recent local election results where Labour lost Hartlepool and other places where you would expect it even now to dominate. Hmm. So, so it is a, it's a paradigm shift in British politics. And I think that many people on the left still haven't grasped it. Or, or if they have, just shrug their shoulders and, hmm. and kind of carry on arguing what they've been arguing for so hmm. many years. Hmm. With when when your book came out um which which i i very much enjoyed by the way um the there was a very ironic response which is so you you wrote a book about how um the uh i suppose the institutionalized left in britain has this um uh well it's just it's just a a sort of a a disgust response at, at working class um grievances um and in in response, uh, you were met with you know snobbery and and um, and well slander really by by, <laughs> by 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 the by the sort of people. It's almost like they <clears throat> they had a race to see who could prove your point the fastest. Um, was, I mean, some of it was ridiculous to be honest. Some of some some of the criticism came from people who hadn't read the book and probably mm. had no intention of reading it, and and some prominent people on the left who said it was a far right tract and. Um, you know, it was a fascist manifesto and it's not the path that Labour should go down. Um, it's just complete nonsense. Anyone who reads the book will see that actually, you know, it makes a, economically, it makes an argument for, for democratic socialism, for, you know, a, a radical recalibration of the economy in favour of, of ordinary working people, reinvigorating manufacturing and, and creating thousands of blue collar jobs and, you know, being willing to, to, to challenge the forces of globalization and neoliberalism and reordering things in favor of ordinary working people, but simply while understanding the, 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 the politics of, of belonging um, mm. and, you know, the politics of social solidarity mm. um, and not doing too much to, to violate that, because if you do, um, you disorientate people and you drive them into the hands of, of Opponents. yeah so that, that's the basis of the book really it's just that, yeah that's the key part you, you talk about in, in in your hometown how the um the the makeup of the town was altered um almost irreversibly by mass immigration and in, in response there was a a surge for the british national party right yeah and they came out of nowhere i mean they came out in 2006 the bmp They'd won one seat on the council in 2004. Before that, they had not come anywhere near to penetrating the borough. They'd, they'd got a foothold in other parts of, of East London, in Tower Hamlets and places, places like that, but they'd never come near Barking and Dagenham. But, but you know, in a few short years, a, a place that was, was you know, overwhelmingly Labour elected 12 BMP councillors and they formed the official opposition on the, the local council in the elections in 2006, their best ever performance in local government. And it was simply because um, local people were not racist or nativist, but they, things were happening around them. The impacts of globalisation in the first decade of, of this mm. century 
you know, the, 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 the impacts of the acute effects in terms of deindustrialization and rapid demographic change. And people were saying, hold on a second, you know, what's, what's happening around me? It was, a, it was their sense of order that had been violated rather than their sense of race. But politicians across the piece, particularly of the left, didn't understand that. They lectured them about the importance of, you know, improving GDP by having open borders. And they lectured them about, you know, cultural enrichment and all of that. And people went, well, if that's what you're going to do, you know, we'll vote for the BNP. And parts of the left still haven't understand those lessons mm. today. To yeah, and 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 that's that's the thing that I, I found most dishonest about the the um, polemics, uh, the the polemics against your book, where, where you know people were you know the, the same old trite of you know saying it was you know a far right text, but what it struck me is is basically being um, just a warning. You know, if you don't address these concerns, then 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 it's it's you who's going to create this reaction, not not you know not not me writing this book. And, and I say to people, you know, take it from me, I'm somebody on the left. I, I've been in the Labour Party for nearly 27 years. I've been an active trade unionist for pretty much all of that time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm someone who believes in the left and wants to see uh, all of the, 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 you know, the social and economic injustices come to an end that we constantly um, campaign against on the left. Um, so, you know, take it from me that this is what's happening in communities like, like my one during that time. And if you don't take it from me, you will end up having to listen, in, listen to potentially far right or, or populist parties who, who, like they did in Barking and Dagenham, tap into, tap into that alienation. Um, so, but at, at the moment, it's, it's a message that is very, very difficult to get through on the left. And that's why the left is in the mess that it's in, frankly. What gives you... Um pride to be working class um i think i mean you know going back to to barking and dagenham in, in the community that i grew up in there's there's an awful lot of social solidarity in those places um where there is or there was a kind of you know unwritten moral code where you know people were expected to, to live by certain rules um and where there aren't huge differences in wealth um, in a community, people feel that they have that, you know, social and cultural connection. Um, I think that's synonymous with trade unionism, you know, the importance of, of not crossing picket lines, um, an injury to one is an injury to all, united we stand, divided we fall, um, all of that kind of thing. And, you know, the history of the working class movement in this country, nothing was ever given to the working class on the plate. They had to organise, they had to fight for it, they had to do it by standing together. Um, and, you know, that's the best of the, the working class for me. And that's why I'm proud to, to be part of that movement. Hmm. Paul Embry, that was your life in 10. Thank you. Cheers.